This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, thank you both for being here. Thanks again, Chris, for coming up from all the way from Los Angeles. Um, I want to know if you can just tell us how the LA Rebellion Project, you talked about it in the opening, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could just sort of talk about how, obviously there was a kernel of an idea, then brought into a larger project and how you put it all together, the scholars you worked with, uh, the process of bringing the filmmakers together, kind of extrapolate that a bit for us. Okay. Um, well, when, when, I, when we started the project, uh, like I said, we knew a couple of filmmakers, and then uh, it, it, uh, it, basically I did the project with uh, Allie Field, who had just come to UCLA, as, as an uh, assistant professor and who worked on, in African-American films. So I brought her into the project, and then, uh, which ended up being another stroke of absolute luck, was that uh, right around the time we were, I was starting to apply for grants uh, to fund the project, uh, Jacqueline Stewart calls me up and says to me, and she, she was a, already at that time a, uh, in this, assistant professor, I think, at uh, Northwestern, and she says to me, well, she wants to learn how to be an archivist. Can she come and intern with me? And I go, Jackie, you're a professor. What do you want to do that for? She says, well, I want to learn about archiving. So she actually spent a year working in L.A. going through the Moving Image Archive Studies program and also then getting heavily involved in this project. And so the three of us uh, started, first of all, by doing oral histories with, the, uh, with all of these filmmakers. So um, that, was, that was part of the uh, setup that the Getty Foundation, which funded the, 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 gave us the seed money for the project, they said, first we want you to do research. So they actually funded all of these oral histories. We ended up doing about 30 oral histories. And... And then, you know, talk to one person, find out about somebody else, and that's how, you know, we finally came to this astonishing figure of almost 50 filmmakers. Now, not all of them became professional filmmakers. Some of them, somebody like Bernard Nichols, who made some great short films, ended up first trying to make it as uh, setting up a distribution company to produce the work of the L.A. Rebellion and other independent African-American filmmakers, and then eventually went and became, uh, became a psychiatrist. And so that's what he does today. Others, uh, like Alili Sharon Larkin, who made some beautiful films, became uh, an educator at t- teaching at USC in their elementary school and teaching kids how to make films. And for 30 years was, was making films with kids. And actually, one, another film uh, we discovered late is... I Dream of Being an African Prince, which I love, which is a film she made with kids. And so uh, slowly the project came together, and then uh, obviously we needed a lot more money than we were getting from the Getty, so I ended up going to the NEA, we went to the Warhol Foundation, uh, we got money for the website, and if you want, are interested in the L.A. Rebellion, we ha- at, if you go to ucla.cinema.edu, uh, uh, that's our archive website, and then we have actually a whole s- 
uh, head page and then uh, basically a research site on the LA Rebellion. That was funded by uh, the California uh, Council of the Humanities. And so over a, you know, a two, three year period, it came together and uh, then we did the initial program. And, but we've been working, you know, I, I said to the filmmakers, this is not just one-time thing. This is not just thing we were going to keep doing stuff. And so uh, we just preserved another Haile Garima film, uh, Harvest 2000, uh, and, and we're doing ongoing preservation as we get money and when we find films. So it's, uh, it's been a gratifying project from that, uh, in that regard. And now the, after this book came out, the final shot is in a couple of weeks we're going to release a three-DVD set which will have 24 short films on it that will be available to educational institutions free of charge. Um, we are not selling it because one of the one of the issues, at least legal issues, with the uh, films of the LA Rebellion is they they really were guerrilla filmmakers. You know, this first scene in in Bush Mama, that's highly Garima getting arrested by white cops in LA because they would just go out in the street and shoot without you know, getting police permits or anything like that. And they would use music, if it wasn't original music that they or their friends composed, they would just use that music. So a lot of the short films have clips in them, music clips. And so when I was thinking about how to do this DVD set, it, for me it was either, you know, either pay $150,000 to lawyers to clear all the rights, and then another half million dollars to, to the rights owners, or we put it together and distribute it for free and, you know, circumvent this whole issue of rights, which seemed a way to go. Instead, I got grant money to pay the filmmakers and not, you know, the lawyers, which is always a good thing as far as I'm concerned. So what was the restoration process like on Bush Mama? Um, the restoration process on Bush Mama was not that difficult because he did have a, 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 whole, a negative that was in one piece. And so really, we, in that case, we just had to make a new print. Uh, for me, the restoration process isn't finished, though, because what we eventually want to do is actually take the negative and blow it up to 35 millimeter, as we did with Bless Their Little Hearts and with Killer, Killer of Sheep, because nowadays, I mean, you can still show 16 millimeter here, but I tell you that most universities are tearing out their 16 millimeter projection, and they only want to have video from this point on. And so 16 is more or less a dying format, except for you know, avant-garde films and stuff like that. So for long-term preservation, we want to have a 35. But, you know, there were other films that were, I mean, Jama Fanaka's first short film, um, Willie Faust, I, we found, Jackie and I spent a whole day in his shed in Compton. He had one of these storage sheds. And in 90-degree heat, and after eight hours of searching, we found this one reel in the dirt in the very back of the shed. And that was his first film. Or... Uh, Malvona Ballinger's film, Rain, which is an absolutely beautiful film. The only thing that, because she passed in 2003, the only thing that survived on that film was a bad 
transfer, a telecine transfer on three-quarter inch tape of her 16 millimeter work print. And so that film we had to digitize and do cleanup on, and it was, I mean, that literally was the only material. And in many cases, it was, there was exactly one element we found, and that was it. And so we'd have to you know, make sure that the, it was preserved in a way so that you know, we could show it and also distribute it at some point. Anna, I wonder if you can just sort of place this film in a kind of cultural, political context for the moment, both within black auteur cinema, also the kind of alternatives to mainstream Hollywood, documentary, avant-garde cinema, uh, global cinema of that period. What was going on in the 1970s? What was going on at UCLA? Why did these, uh, this whole Elder Rebellion filmmakers, why did they kind of come to these approaches to cinema that's quite different than uh, maybe the other filmmakers at UCLA at the time? Yeah. Um, it's a provocative question because there are so many points of entry to answer it, but it's also a multi-layered answer um, to really address what was happening. But essentially, you have to look at, or we have to take a retrospective gaze back onto that moment. And so you're talking about, in the wake of the Watts riots, um, you're talking about a period of um, transnational uh, freedom, liberation struggles in Africa, in Latin America, and, and many of the uh, former colonial um, outposts. And you know, so there were these kind of global struggles going on around the world. And, and in the States, of course, we had the civil rights movement. Now, um, one of the problems was that with the emphasis on the, the civil rights movement and you know, southern oppression, places like L.A. and other regions in the country really sort of were let off the hook in terms of their oppressive structures and um, uh, systems at work. So uh, what happened was uh, in, in 1965, the Watts riots was you know, sort of uh, brought on by a police shooting um, of, a, uh, of a, a black motorist. And so the, the uprising occurred in reaction to that action. And as a result, the, the city was in turmoil. Um, the universities were involved in the free speech movement. So there was turmoil around the universities. And so out of that, there was an actual shooting at UCLA. And with some of the black students um, who had come to study films, they were pushing uh, for uh, more of a, um, uh, an ability to create films and to address what was going on. And so it wasn't that UCLA just decided, oh, well, we think we'll just have you know, an, an opportunity for, uh, for these uh, underrepresented students to come and participate in the filmmaking school. It was a direct demand by the students themselves. Like Frederick Douglass says, power concedes nothing without a demand. And so these students were demanding to participate and, and, and have some, um, some role. And they wanted to make films that were... Um, going to reflect their education. So one of the things that, that, that happens then is, um, as, as you pointed out, Chris, uh, the, the way the other, many of the professors were, were not necessarily supportive. Um, but one of the things that, um, that Garima said that struck me in an interview, um, he said that one of the professors that he had listened to him. And he said what he wanted to do was to absorb and to try to create an art text that reflected their their world-class cinema training. You know, they were learning about neorealism and guerrilla filmmaking, the, the new wave. They were learning about um, classic Hollywood cinema. Um, and of course, um, 
the cinema novo and imperfect cinema really appealed to, to him. And he said he just wanted the professors to listen to his voice and help him to execute his voice. And he said the only voice that was receptive to him was William Friedkin. He said, you know, the guy who did The Exorcist. He said, because he had been blacklisted. So he was like, yeah, okay, if you want to do that, you know, we'll work with you on that. And so, you know, he was, he was talking about, um, he said, but for the rest of the professors, it was really a, a difficult um, uh, situation, but he said, we learned what we wanted to do. And he said that, he said, now, one of the things that happened, and I think this kind of puts it in context. So, there, so they, uh, I, as I mentioned in the opening framing remarks, you know, they were, they were seeing um, classic Hollywood cinema and, of course, the racist representations and depictions of blacks and blackness really made them cringe and, like you said, want to get under the table and, you know, and not deal with, but they started seeing these films from Africa, um, you know, some uh, Usman Semben's films. He was trained in, the, in, in Russian um, socialist realism. And so, you know, he really was doing these real, really radical revolutionary texts that were about, you know, how to confront um, oppression. And so they wanted to produce films that reflected that. Um, but one of the other um, elements of their sort of praxis, their filmmaking agenda, was that they wanted to make films that could not be co-opted um, into Hollywood, right? And, and as you can see, a film like that is difficult to co-opt into Hollywood, right? <laughs> so, you know, so they really wanted to, but they also wanted to, to shed light on the community because after the, um, after the Watts riots, there were all these reports, the Moynihan report about black women and the matriarchy and, you know, basically blaming black people for, for, for their own victimization, right? And so they wanted to make films that spoke to those kinds of social inequities and, and you know, criminal justice reform was a big part of what was happening at the time. So they were really intent on making films that spoke to the reality of the moment, that um, let them exercise their creativity um, and to express a counter cinema. You know. um, and one final point, one of the things that, um, that the Grima said, he said, you know, when we were in school, so we didn't want to, we, when we were trying to make our films, he said, we did not want to um, deal with any Euro-American films. We didn't want to see them. We didn't want to make them. He said, but then, you know, when some of us got jobs and we had to teach them, we calmed down and we realized, okay, so there's something here. We need to learn this. <laughs> so, he, you know, it was this whole, you know, sort of being caught up in the moment. And, um, you know, so they really were trying to, you know, not only uh, address art um, in a powerful social critique, you know, commentary, but they really wanted to find their own voice as artists. I think one of the things that strikes me seeing this film again on a big screen is that this, this is one of the first films I can really think of made in this country that expresses pure black subjectivity. You know, Hollywood, of course, we know, had created a lot of racist images, and then it had gone over to less racist images, but even, you know, even when you had a good African-American like the Sidney Portier type, it was, they were still objectified. Just men and women, black men and women were always objectified, were always put into some type of stereotypical situation. Whereas here, Grima by you know, not differentiating between dream and reality, between you know, what we know may have happened and what we don't know, is, is expressing a, 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 an overt subjectivity that is, is maybe the most revolutionary thing about this film as far as I'm concerned. 
You know, as, can I just, as you were, as you were yeah. talking, you reminded me of something. So I'm teaching this Black Couture's class, but I'm also teaching one of my favorite um, undergrad seminars, Film and TV of the 1960s. And you were talking about, you know, this idea of a, of a dream and can you capture a dream? And, and even Garima mentioned that he wanted to make a, you know, a film. That, can you make a film like a dream? And, um, and I was uh, reminded then of... Um, of uh, Robe Grier and Alain Renee's Last Year at Marion Bad, you know, and it's that whole sort of way in which the story unfolds. You're not sure what's happening, when and where. And again, you know, these the students are seeing these films and they're being influenced. Like I said, they have this world-class cinema education. And so you can see those influences being played out in, in that film. Um, one other thing, um, uh, he was asked about, uh, uh, Grima was asked about uh, the black exploitation films. And he said, oh my God, you know, here we are trying to make our films and Sweetback comes out. And he said, I could not get into that film. He said, you know, first of all, it was just the morality of this little kid and this, and this having this kind of relationship with this older woman. And he said, I just was not there. That film did not appeal to me and it did not appeal to others. He said, you know, because here we are in film school and we're trying to learn how to make a counter cinema. And we're thinking jazz represents pure art. It's a standard of, of black cultural productions that we would like to emulate in our film. So, you know, he said, so yeah, I, I couldn't, you know, so the black exploitation um, was, you know, clearly something that for Garima at least um, was just completely a counter and opposite of what he was trying to do. And he just felt that it, it set also what they were trying to do back. And he, and he felt that with them trying to create a black cinema, um, that it was really something that set the, the, their agenda back, set the movement back, but also in terms of inculcating an audience you know, for, for accepting new kinds of, of imagery was really problematic. Uh, as I write in the essay I have in the L.A. Rebellion book, though, you know, black exploitation, yes, black, black exploitation was, however, unbelievably popular with African-American audiences as the L.A. Rebellion films weren't. And a lot of the L.A. Rebellion films, it's, they have this, yes, they are critiquing black exploitation, but it's, they're almost counter-exploitation in that they, it's a yin and yang situation. So even the title of this film, Bush Mama, could be mistaken for a black exploitation film. You know, you have a Pam Greer film called Black Mama, White Mama. I mean, it's, it's, there, and there are lots of tropes in this film that are playing off the stereotypes created through black exploitation. Um, and, and then the other thing, too, is that these, this film is produced as the black exploitation um, uh, cycle of films has wound down. Um, and so, uh, so it, it's, it's kind of a situation where, again, this is a student film, and um, Garima is, is trying to, again, you know, play with and experiment with all these different kinds of visual, um, formal aesthetics and elements, as well as you know, produce this kind of revolutionary sort of dialectical montage idea um, where, where form and content come together right, to create something new. And you know, so it, it is the case, I think you're absolutely right, that we, we're looking at this huge popular um, a group of films but the, the, the problem also, as I was saying, was in another context, you know, what I like to call the, the, the sort of prestige ghettos that these films, and also the, the films of Cinema Novo and Imperfect Cinema, didn't reach widely in, in, in some instances. I, I think in, in, in Argentina, perhaps they, um, I mean, in, in Argentina, um, in Brazil, you know, they, uh, they did, you know, they were popular, there were three stages of them. 
Um, but yeah, so, so many of these films, particularly I know for the African um, films, you know, they, they didn't get to the audiences that they were making them for. They uh, mainly circulated in film festivals and universities. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. The, the black flotation films were able to get this wide circulation. And, you know, these, these kids were in, in film school trying to create a new language that would appeal to an audience. But it was a chicken and egg situation if they don't get before the audience, mm-hmm. you know, to see and to learn a new language that's not classic Hollywood cinema, three-act cinema, you know, um, it, it's difficult you know, to make that translation. So, yeah. You know, I, the I, I one of the great ironies is that the, these, uh, all of the, the films of Garima, of uh, Charles Burnett, of Billy Woodbury, of Larry Clark, had their biggest successes initially in Europe. They were being lionized in Europe in film festivals when, you know, they couldn't get a screening get a in screening. Los Angeles. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, you made me think of uh, Elvis Mitchell's comment about black exploitation cinema was that, that it had something that white cinema didn't, which was that they had heroes that won, mm-hmm. right? So that one of the things about black exploitation cinema too that it was fantasy, whereas what you're really looking at here is a very stark reality. So stark reality always plays a little less at the box office, if you will, mm-hmm. than, than of course the sort of fantasy. Um, but I'm curious, that maybe moving to like, what's that? I was like, we want to get the audience. In. Yes, I just wanted to ask one quick question just about um, about aesthetics. Uh, about the use of, of, of a kind of a 16 millimeter and the kind of the influences of those aesthetics beyond just um, the constraints, because the the UCLA imprimatur does two different things. On one hand, provides an opportunity to make these kinds of films, and years later, provides an opportunity to restore them. But I'm also curious about how the fact that this comes from student filmmaking that informs some of what you're looking at. You know, it, it is interesting, too, um, uh, not only uh, the imprimatur of UCLA uh, to be able to, to go on and perhaps have a career, but as Garima said, get a job at Howard University. has been there mm-hmm. since, you know, 76. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a student film, so obviously there are elements that um, I think speak to the freedom to experiment and to explore, and that, um, on the one hand, wants to manifest a... Um, um, uh, a mastery of film language, um, of, of sophisticated storytelling through cinema, um, while at the same time, you know, again, manifesting the kind of guerrilla filmmaking that was necessary to get your films made. I mean, just the, the structure of the program, you know, where, the, you know, their project one was, was where, you know, the first quarter they showed up, they were given a camera the first year and just go out and, you know, make something, right? And so, uh, you know, there's clearly this desire to immerse yourself within the training, um, within the aesthetics, and learn the history of cinema, which they did, um, and, at the same, and therefore could reject it. And that's mm-hmm. really what was going on here. There was a real sort of concerted effort to reject um, classic Hollywood cinema. Uh, and so, so uh, first world cinema and then uh, avant-garde European cinema was, was something that had appeals to them as well. Um, but then the third cinema, the, the, the revolutionary political agitprop kind of cinema, was, was really what is, is, is at um, base underlining um, what's going on here in Bush Mama, you know, this, this desire that really reflects uh, something that uh, Julie Dash once said. Um, she said when she was trying to get Daughters of the Dust made, she said that um, 
you know, one of the problems of getting that film green-lighted and, and getting funded in Hollywood was that she said, you know, no studio executive who was white and male wanted to spend two hours as a black woman. So that idea of identification, you know, with the, with, with the characters and with the screen and with that story was, was, was a, a bridge too far. And uh, so I think one of the things that's happening here is, like, you have to be willing to, you know, do that, that you know, suturing to this narrative and to having this this you know, primary identification with poor black people in the ghetto, you know, um, living day to day. And, that's, and that is not an easy um, lift for, for uh, people who want to have escapist narrative with a very easy text and you know, with, an open, with, a, with a very logical beginning, middle, and end. So. I'm also fascinated by the actors because, I mean, these were initially amateur actors, but they appear in film after film of the L.A. Rebellion. So Barbara O, oh, who for me is just this unbelievable goddess, she, you know, she makes Diary of an African Nun with Julie Dash. She's in also then later in, in, Daughters, uh, of in Daughters of the Dust, as is Coralie yeah, Day, who is, is, is the kind of uh, skinny woman. Yeah, is Molly the crazy Molly, one who snatched the, crazy the wig one. off. Yeah. She's, she's in that she's, film. She's, uh, the Simi plays the the mother in uh, or, or, or an African American woman where a young man steals her pocketbook in Billy Woodbury's first film, The Pocketbook. She is then later in um, uh, in another film by um, I'm blanking out. Uh, oh, Steve uh, Steve Tropian, not super young. Uh, Steve. Um, I can't remember. I'll, I'll come in a second. But all of these actors appear again and again in the films of, of those directors as well as Jamal Fanaka. And so it's, it, it really was, becomes a kind of ensemble. It's really fascinating to watch. Um, I'm glad you said that. Um, one of the other things that Garima said was he said uh, one of the things that, he, that was important to him was to have a collaborative relationship um, with his actors. And, um, and absolutely, I mean, he brought the community in, and that was another big part of the aesthetic as well as, um, you know, the, um, the, the, the filmmaking um, logistics, really, to, to, to be able to, to make a film like that and to reflect the community, but to involve the community. It was a real, you know, sort of collaborative project. And he said he found Barbara O oh, um, uh, through Larry Clark, he said, because Larry Clark knew his script, and that, um, and Barbara, uh, um, yeah, Barbara O oh was was in in community theater. She was she was acting and she was uh, portraying Angela Davis, and that's and so he brought them together and they talked. And he said one of the things that's important to him is to you know have that that collaborative relationship with with his actors because you know they only get like a one to one shooting ratio when usually you have like one to twenty five to one to forty four. So you can cut stuff and you know have the best you know, but it's like you, what you shoot you use. And so he was talking about, but that doesn't mean that he said that he's not prepared. He said he'll go to his set and, you know, spend time there and walk around and, you know, really plan everything out because, you know, you're making it on, on, a, on, on a student budget. And mm-hmm. so, or as an independent, you don't have a big budget. So, you know, you have to prepare and plan. He said, but one of the reasons he doesn't like storyboarding is because it fixes you and you don't, you don't. Uh, take advantage of serendipity that happens. He said, so you're prepared, and you're ready, and you've memorized everything. But what you want to do is if something really uh, fortuitous happens, you want to be able to, you know, to just throw away that particular script in that moment and then just, 
you know, take advantage of, of that particular um, magical circumstance. And that, that collaboration also was behind the camera because you know, you, if you looked at the credits, Charles Burnett is, is on camera, Larry Clark is in it, Ben Caldwell, mm -hmm. uh, so all, who are all directors themselves. So everybody is working on everybody else's films. Well, that's kind of like here with, yeah. our, with, with our production um, films, all the students work on each other's films, and it's out of necessity. And what, what students have to remember, too, this is all shot on film, mm -hmm. right? On film. So you have to shoot it, you have to develop it, and cut it. So it's, it's, you know, so there's also a, as much as there's serendipity, there's also concision and budget and, and kind of really training because you run out of... And craft. And, and craft. craft. Right. You run out of, you know, it's not like you shoot 25 hours and if you get something great, you know, exactly. you just don't have the money. So I wanted to just, because of course we are talking about the archives, there's two very quick questions. And uh, the first one is, uh, it's more of a statement, but one of the things we think is an archive is kind of dead storage for old stuff. Right. But I think what you've demonstrated through LA Rebellion, by the way, it's not a good quote, but um, I think what you've demonstrated through LA Rebellion is that archivists do more than just house things. They bring back, curate, uh, um, narrate a culture, and that's part of what the LA Rebellion's about. And I thought, if you're willing to talk about it, what the next big project that you're working on as a kind of preview of the kind of work that UCLA does, and I think almost somewhat of a, almost kind of a continuation of what you've done here. Okay, um, as I mentioned earlier, L.A. Rebellion was Pacific Standard Time 1. La uh, two years ago, Gilgetti announced Pacific Standard Time 2, which is going to be called L.A. and L.A., which stands for Latin America and Los Angeles. So the project that I came up with is, uh, it turns out that in Los Angeles, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, there were at least six theaters downtown that only showed Spanish-language films from Mexico, Argentina, Cuba, to Latino audiences. All of these theaters uh, and all of the neighborhoods were wiped off the face of the map after World War II when the white city fathers of Los Angeles decided that Los Angeles had to again be a white city in order to bring all those soldier boys back who had passed through Los Angeles on their way to the Pacific War. And so they literally raised 30 or 40 blocks of Mexican neighborhoods and got rid of the Mexicans. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And, and so the, this Spanish uh, cinema culture completely disappeared out of the cultural memory of Los Angeles. So... I didn't come up with this myself. We had a graduate student at UCLA, uh, Colin Gunkel, who wrote a book, which is now out called Mexico on Main Street, about these cinemas. But I took this idea, made him one of my co-curators on this project, and then we are now going to recuperate the cinema, which is a lot more difficult than it sounds, because A, if you look at all standard film histories, you will not find a single word about Spanish language cinema from Mexico or Latin America from before 1960, because the ideology is Latin American cinema does not begin until the post-liberation cinema of the 60s. So uh, even though Mexico was making somewhere between 50 and 100 feature films a year, even though Cuba before the revolution, made at least 80 feature films. 
In Cuba, it was official policy until a year ago to, to deny the existence of a film industry in Cuba before the revolution. And in most of these countries, these, uh, the, inf the archival infrastructures are in either terrible condition or total disasters. So that we're now having to preserve a lot of this work before we can show it. Once we started doing the research on this project, which again, as uh, we first got a, a planning grant and then an implementation grant, when we started doing the research, we found out that the largest distributor of these classic Latin American films was in, on Vermont Avenue uh, in Los Angeles and was called Azteca. We also found out that uh, Mexican and other Latin American producers would often shoot their films in rental studios in Hollywood because the infrastructure there existed the way it didn't in these countries. So, you know, we've now discovered that there was an indigenous Spanish language based classical cinema in Los Angeles in this whole time period that covered distribution, exhibition, and production. And so that's the project that in fall of 2017 we're going to bring in a show and then we'll take on tour. We also have a book planned, etc. So. so you'll be back for that. And, and you're right. I mean, maybe because I started life as an academic and then became an archivist, for me, it's always been important not just to you know, be a caretaker of films, but really also, because who better knows what's in the archive than archivists to, to curate, too? So that is important. Thank you all for being here, and thank you to our guests. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.